The following program contains explicit material. If you are under 18 years old, please fuck off. Welcome to Spinning Yarns. I'm your host, Joe Amaro, and I, for one, could have been dead many times over a long time ago. But for some reason, I'm still here. I've had a crazy life and met a ton of amazing people along the way who've inspired me. I'm going to invite some of these folks here to share some of their incredible and unbelievable stories with us. Who knows, we may even learn something along the way. There's way too much bullshit in this life. We need more real talk from real people. So sit back, chill out, and listen up, because we're spinning yarns. Hey, welcome back to Spinning Yarns. I'm your host, Joe Amaro. And right off the top of the show here, I'd like to make an apology and a retraction. On this show, I have, uh, I've said a lot of derogatory and unfair remarks about a group of people and I want to apologize. It's not fair. It's not right. And it's not me. So, to all the people of England, I'd like to say sorry. I have no problem with you. I don't know where that started and became an inside joke. It's not funny. I love your music. I love your actors. I love everything about you. And uh, that being said, uh, of course, I, I, I hate the monarchy and fuck the king. And uh, this flag has been hung upside down in protest. Uh, as far as last week's show, Truth to Power, uh, I'd like to thank the employees of the corporation for taking time out of their busy work schedules to... Uh, to view the show and uh, comment in a race and comment in a race. The comments stay forever on uh, the YouTube channel. So um, we have, we have all your comments and, and they were, um, they were, they were creative. Um, But I have to say, uh, thank you very much for our highest rated show. As of this recording, we are sitting at 666 views so thank you for that. And march on, Christian soldiers. March on. It's funny that your biggest takeaway from that entire episode, in which I sat at a desk and poured my heart out with an hourglass filled with my dead brother's remains in front of me uh, about the injustices and uh, illegal activity and neglect and cruel and uh, ignorant behavior I've uh, been the uh, uh, victim of in the past few years your biggest takeaway was that i mentioned that some of you don't give away juice (laughs) march on christian soldiers you're doing god's work and uh remember we see you and you don't have to believe in harm reduction because it believes in you i feel so much better lifted the gaslighting and threats and bullshit is over uh fuck off and uh, on today's show, we're going to get down to some real business in the world that actually makes a difference. Um, we're going to talk to someone who r- actually really cares about people and would 
give them the juice out of their own fridge, I'm sure. We're going to talk to Eris Nix from the Drug User Liberation Front. And Eris Sassafras Nix most definitely has the juice. Here's a little call to action from the Dolph's website on the Dope on Arrival program. We call on every leader in British Columbia and Canada to listen to people who use drugs and live up to their responsibility to stop the drug war's senseless cycle of death. Our demands are the following. All levels of government must immediately fund programs for safe and accessible supplies of all drugs, including cocaine, heroin, and crystal meth, by directly listening to user groups and people who use drugs. Number two. All levels of government must immediately develop an accessible legal framework that decriminalizes, licenses, funds, and provides facility spaces for heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine consumption clubs. Number three, all government commissions on drug policy, safe supply, and decriminalization must include meaningful representation from drug user groups. Nothing about us without us. It is with profound frustration and unimaginable grief we share this message to provincial and federal government officials. Step up and address the issues that are killing us or allow us access to the resources and funds to do it ourselves outside of the constraints of this discriminatory structure. From the Drug User Liberation Front, this is Eris Nix. Boom. We're being recorded. Eris, Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm uh, late. I've had an insane day. You're two minutes late. You can be. You can afford to be two minutes insane. It's nice to see you again. Yeah, yeah. You too. How are you? How are I'm, you doing? I'm also uh, on the uh, on the brink of insanity, but yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm alive. What's going on? What's new and exciting? Oh, just uh, my stalker tried to steal my identity, so I've spent all day trying to deal with that. Like, well, like it, it, banking and all this, like getting in, or like who? No, mostly trying to dox my uh, address. I figure through BC Societies online, what? so I had to spend all day on hold trying to get them to revoke access or whatever. Anyway. It's all over now, but uh, that's why I'm late, because I was dealing with that, which is super annoying, uh, but it's done with, hopefully, for the next little bit until the next thing, you know? Yeah, I hope so. That's, yeah, that's fucked up. Um, yeah, I just have you on here. I don't have any any uh, great uh, gifts or surprises or anything. I just, you know, for my money, you and your crew out there on the West Coast are doing the best and most important thing in the fucking world you know and i just want to run it back and you know just boost the signal i just want to talk about all the all the stuff drug user liberation front you know you know it (laughs) what what's what's um just give us the elevator give us the elevator pitch for the uninitiated i mean i don't think there's like uh there's no easy way The, the the situation's so fucked and psychotic like really, I should start. Well, I should start with the the the, the coroner's data is where I should start. So, uh, one sec. Is this just a video, or, or is this just audio, or you do video? Uh, I do both. I do both. I get more more uh, more hits on the YouTube. So, uh, oh, if you want to give me access to share my screen. Oh shit! Yeah. <clears throat> 
I'll show you something that I think is particularly interesting. So uh, if you go, this is the, uh, can you see this? Yep. This is a BCCDC's website. So mm -hmm. there's also a version of this unregulated drug poisoning emergency dashboard on uh, the uh, corner. BC Corner also has one. So there's two dashboards mm -hmm. uh, that didn't hyperlink to where I thought it would anyway. That's besides the point. So you look at this nice little chart they got here. This is Vancouver Coastal, Vancouver Coastal Health, where I live. This is uh, unregulated drug deaths per 100,000 population uh, in 2023. They actually have this set to exclude Vancouver Center North. And if you see down here, it says Vancouver. Well, Vancouver Center North is the name of the local health authority that includes the downtown east side, right? So we go here, we click include. Well, fuck. this is us. Holy fuck. 556.8 deaths per 100,000 population. So six people, six. Here's the, here's the crux of the issue to me. In my neighborhood where I live, you know, where I open my door and there are people overdosed on the street, six in every thousand people will die of an overdose this year. Six in that. You take a thousand people, six of those people will die of overdose. And, uh, you know, year after, you can look at this chart, like we blow every other health authority out of the water. I'm just curious. So the baseline, if we look at Canada rate of OD, let's say 2013, uh, I guess I should write overdose, not OD. Should have came with my material prepared, haha. -ha, but um, so, bo -bo 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 -bo, can I get a number per 100,000? Per one hundred thousand. God, they make it hard to find this information, huh? Yeah. Death. So it's, how it's just excluded? That's the default when you open it. Well, not just that, but I I can't find the Canadian baseline, like a baseline rate for Canada to draw draw a com comparison to. Canada OD rate per 100,000 population. Because this all comes into, okay, here we go. So, uh, uh, uh. and this is already 2022. So this is, this things have already gotten bad across the country. But for comparison, the Canadian 2022, and I can also look at, I'll switch this from uh, 2023 to 2022. The Canadian rate of OD per 100,000 people, right? is 19 per 100,000. I want to say before what we call the drug toxicity crisis or the, you know, whatever people call it, opioid crisis, uh, you know, whatever, there's a bunch of different names for it, but um, I call it the, the crisis of market regulation. Before all of this started, I think the rate was closer to like seven per 100,000. In 2022 in the downtown east side, our rate was 481 per 100,000, which, you know, if the rate, if the Canadian national rate in 2022 is uh, 900 or 19, sorry, 19 per 100,000, 481 divided by 19. So the downtown east side has a rate 25 times higher than the national average. 
which is it's ludicrous like you you basically i know someone that dies every week right so the, the background of this problem is in my specific community i don't want to talk in some kind of sweeping generalization about every community across the country or world because i don't think this problem exists as acutely but in the downtown east side where the rate of death is 25 times higher than the national rate of death uh, there's no intervention there's no intervention slowing down this you know anomaly in public health statistics and it's it's a you know, well, I call it an anomaly. It's a, really a tragedy. So basically, the background of this is that people are getting wiped out in my community, wiped out by drug overdose deaths. And uh, in 2018, so I used for, for even further context, uh, probably in 2014, I worked for Rain City Housing and the, the shelter system, 2014 through 2018. And what, what you see happen year after year is an escalating number of overdoses where we would be responding um with naloxone you know giving breasts not chest compressions for the most part you don't really do that unless someone's heart stopped beating but real fucked up shit till it got to the point where we were responding to 10 overdoses per day right per shit mm -hmm. which is fucked and especially you know it was like 23 24 uh really fucked me up. So I moved into overdose prevention uh, service delivery. So what, what, what is now called housing overdose prevention services. So opening up safer use rooms in housing sites and shelters. So I, I started all these peer, peer witnessed kind of supervised injection rooms in a bunch of Rain City projects. And uh, those weren't particularly effective for a multiplicity of reasons at reducing overdose rates mainly because if people are going to overdose and die they're already using drugs they don't want to use drugs socially right mm -hmm. right and uh in 2018 i was offered this job at the cdc that probably paid double well maybe not double but a third as much of the wage you know up until things get really hairy i'm operating on purely mercenary I'm like whoever's paying me the most I'm working there you know yeah, yeah. Uh, I was married to someone that wanted all this cosmetic surgery da, da, da. I was like I'll go get this job I can pay for all your shit what yeah. I saw what I saw there was wow this problem this problem is happening all across you know the the province like people are dying on mass all across the province not as acutely in the downtown east side per se but it's happening everywhere. And even in places that already have services. I mean, the downtown east side being the prime example of this, we have, you know, all these co-located services. Why does everyone continue to die? Like people have access to overdose prevention sites and the lock zone, uh, you know, to some extent, this like medicalized safer supply. What I come to realize is that it's actually market deregulation that's killing people. It's not uh, accidental overdose. It's not you know, drug supply contamination. The drug supply just follows the rhythm of capitalism, right? It follows the, whatever, the free hand of the market, I think they say it. So whatever, however dealers can make the most money, they're going to do that, right? So it's not, it's not so much an intentional poisoning of the drug supply as someone realized, hey, fentanyl is a viable substitute for heroin and we can manufacture it domestically. 
Same with crystal meth. The reason you see crystal meth replace crack cocaine as a prime stimulant, it's all cost-based. Unlike a point of crystal meth, and I can say this from us, it's a it's a dollar seventy-five, right? A point of crack is like five, ten dollars, depending on who you are and how bad bad you are with money. Um, well, so you have this drive. It's a drive towards fentanyl, and it's a drive towards. Uh, it's a drive towards crystal meth, ostensibly, for purely economic reasons, because they're not imported drugs. You can manufacture them domestically for dirt cheap, and then you can sell them for tremendous profit margins. So what I realized when I'm working this high-paying job at the CDC, and I was hired as the provincial peer coordinator. My job was to bolster peer services across the province. What I realized is well, if you want everyone to stop dying, you need to, to regulate the drug market. You need to sell people drugs with a predictable content, uh, which is what they don't get from the illicit drug market, you know, approximately for the most part. If you go on the street, and especially in Vancouver, if you go on the street and try and buy drugs here, it's absolutely no guarantee what you will get, no matter what you try and buy, uh, unless you test it. So, so ostensibly i'm like somebody's got to you know open some kind of store where they sell drugs in a regulated way and uh, everyone at the cdc is like you're crazy and i'm like and another thing there's this kind of diffusion of harm reduction services throughout the province so we, we may say that you know every community of need has a safe injection site or has a drug users resource group uh, which I found to not be the case at all, especially not in the, you know, more rural parts of the province, even, you know, places like Prince George, which after I was liquidated from my job at the CDC, did end up getting these services. But you'd be like, people are getting wiped out here. You have this like bogus, you know, white supremacist city council and uh, nobody's doing anything. So I, I kept saying this and everyone was like, you're being abusive. You're you're saying we're the reason everyone's dying. You're talking to the government, saying accusing them of killing people. Blah blah blah. You can't do this. You can't do that. And I was like, "Fuck you, firemen." And uh, you know what ends up happening is eventually they do. Uh, you know, fucking five months into my probation or whatever, my boss would call me into our office every Monday, be like, "You do such good work, but you can't do it." this you know and i get angry and angrier being like well no one wants to stop this problem and it's a you know provincially declared public health crisis since 2016 i believe um of which we're now on year seven and eventually they fired me but because uh they were basically like you're a junkie bum like yes yes person like your job here is to be like yes nice resource you've created or whatever i just sat there and i read read the law and i would phone lawyers and what i realized working there was that someone needed to write what's called the section 56 exemption to the controlled drugs and substance act and section 56 is the i i guess you would call it the steam valve to the hot water tank of the drug law meaning it's it exists to permit the federal government to allow exemptions for scientific medical purposes or other purposes, uh, other purposes to the benefit of Canadian society. What I realized is someone had to use this exemption in order to run some kind of market regulation project, right? Mm -hmm. So I write all this kind of foundational, you know, outlining legal, I guess you would call it a, a review of legal 
processes kind of explaining what needs to happen in order to stop this public health crisis. Well, the CDC fires me, and then I go on to run this conference called the Safe Supply Conference in 2018, and that's where I met Jeremy Kellican. He was the only person we would have a weekly organizing call. I was contracted by this group, New Leaf Nanaimo, to run this conference, and we would have a weekly organizing call. I hadn't met him yet, but he would be the only person uh, other than myself on this call. And eventually we run this conference, and the conclusion of the conference is somebody's got to run the store that regulates the drug supply. And everyone's like, yeah, someone should do that. Well, what happens over the next year, I break up with my ex-spouse and um, we start in Vancouver because there's no end in sight to uh, all these deaths. We start handing out drugs for free, being like, someone should regulate the drug supply. And this kind of accumulates, I would say, this is kind of the origin of Dolph. So in 2019, I think we did our first giveaway where, where cocaine was handed out. And then in 2020, you know, I could be a little chronologically confused. It could start in 2020, but it's neither here nor there. Uh, we eventually start amping up kind of the scale and we're like, how far can we push this till we go to jail? You know, which includes like handing out heroin in front of the police station with the city councilor and sending the chief of police a huge Willy Wonka ticket, inviting him to this thing. And I guess uh, in many ways over that, that kind of 2019 to present period, I kind of go off the deep end. Like my radicalism, my willingness to put myself in extreme jeopardy in order to achieve my ends grows out of you know, a disenfranchisement with pretty much everything, uh, everything, period, right? I'm like, I might as well be dead. And if I'm not dead, I might as well be doing something for the benefit of everyone, uh, myself included, you know, obviously as someone that uses drugs. Uh, and I don't want to, I never want to make this seem like it's a project of empathy or compassion or something, even though it's called the compassion club, whatever, because I don't believe in any of those terms. I'm like, it's a sympathetic project between myself and other drug users. I don't want to go to prison. I don't think other people should be in prison. Their enemy is my enemy. And therefore we're fighting the same enemy. It's not, Oh, I pity you. Let me put myself into your shoes. I'm going to fix a problem. It's a very, you know, hand to mouth kind of situation because <laughs> I, I think I said this the other day. I'm like, there, there are two things I like doing. One is drugs and the other one's having anal sex. And both of them, you know, up until quite recently were illegal. Uh, and I'm not going to jail for doing either one because I don't think anyone should. Well, you know, so I have a very literal connection to solving a, a problem that's affecting a whole lot of people beyond me. Kind of to bring everything to a head from that. So in Vancouver, again, you have an escalated overdose rate. And not only that, you have an, uh, an overdose rate that's 25 times the national average in the downtown east side. Uh, you have me just not giving a fuck, you know, prepared to die. You have uh, us already getting away with a lot. Like if, if I have any advice for other groups who are dealing with the same kind of situation, it's start small or operate entirely clandestinely. I think you have a better chance of success in the public side, but only if the public's behind you. So I wouldn't say jump off the deep end and open a store. I would say start with these kind of 
we're giving drugs away to show that they won't cause overdoses with follow-up in the immediate community. Go from there to store, not unless you have your local health authority support or whatever, you know. Um, so you get to 2021, and we've done uh, several of these giveaways. We haven't had any overdoses. We've been doing kind of uh, follow-up with the people that have been receiving the drugs. We're not hearing very many negative complaints. I, I know if you look at some of our initial distributions, there's quite a high cut of caffeine in the heroin. And then the following that, there's quite a high cut of six monoacetylmorphine. Both of those things were byproducts of COVID, you know, because you have to remember heroin's an imported drug. It's like the same with the, the cut of cocaine you would see. There was like a lot more levamisol and fucking vitamin B12, just stuff that people buff into cocaine uh, back in the, you know, COVID era than there is currently. It's a lot easier to get pure cocaine now. Um, we do all these giveaways and we're like, well, it doesn't seem like anyone else is going to run this store project. So I guess it's up to us to do it because we have, we have a, we have a way we could do it with using the illicit market. We have the testing infrastructure that we've already used uh, via substance, which is the university of Victoria and they do paper spray mass spectron. Sorry, Jesus, these testing mechanisms are real tongue twisters paper spray mass spectrometry as well as uh ftir which is fucking fourier transmitter light refraction whatever uh which uses like a laser to like bounce it uses light to detect what's in a sample i don't want to get into too much jeremy's a chemist i'm the artist of the operation but we have access to to you know testing that's good enough we're like look government of Canada, we can do this two ways. Either you give us the exemption and then we can approach pharmaceutical companies to do this because they're, they're not going to give us the time of day if we don't have an exemption because if we're trafficking drugs, even if we buy them from a pharmaceutical source, that's that's against the law. That's still drug trafficking. You can't traffic heroin without an exemption, right? Any project, you know, look at Crosstown, they have a section 56 exemption. So we're like, either you do that or we go the illicit route where we don't work with a pharmaceutical corporation and we buy drugs from the dark web because it's the most pragmatic, least dangerous, you know, methodology we can acquire these substances from unless we have access directly to a pharmaceutical corporation. So kind of over this time, a, a year goes by until uh, July of 2022. And we don't hear, Health Canada asks us, Wait, sorry, July of 2022. Yeah, correct. Health Canada only speaks to us once, maybe twice, but it's to ask clarifying questions. So like, well, how would you be accountable? For instance, how would you inventory these substances and prevent people from stealing them? And then we really, you know, gave them a couple options. We were like, we could put them into these like bomb-proof Mark Tyndall machines, which would cost a tremendous amount of money. But if you gave us the funding, why not? Or we could, you know, which is our model currently, use medication, you know, administration records, Mars basically, which, um, you know, we track, we track everything anonymously. So we do keep track of who buys what and the inputs and outputs and transfers and purchase, like all, that's all on paper. We do not track by name. There's nothing attached to anyone's medical record as you would conventionally see with a, a mark. 
And uh, through this kind of time period, we start what's called the dope on arrival program. And this is something I don't think people understand about dope is that we have two, you know, core streams of programming. One is uh, each time the coroner releases numbers, releases their number of people that have died, releases the, the number of fatalities from the unregulated drug supply. Each time that happens, we will give out free drugs to a local drug user group. And in, in certain cases, provincial drug user groups, although that hasn't you know, necessarily worked out the best. There's been cases of individuals just taking, saying, oh yeah, I'm going to hand out the drugs and then they take all the drugs and we don't, you know. Yeah, not not ideal behavior, but uh, regardless. So we, we were doing this thing and we continue to do it where when the coroner releases a number of deaths, we provide three and a half grains of each cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine for free to a, a given group using crowdsource funds. They distribute that to their membership. We check in and we have no deaths, no adverse effects, da da da, you know. Um, and then we have what's called the Evaluative Compassion Club. So the framework we sent to Health Canada, which is available on our website, www.dulf.ca, uh, which is about, I don't know, 200 some odd pages or whatever. This framework, they reject our application to be able to run the project. We also uh, submit what's called a SUAP, a Substance Use and Addiction Program grant, which is a request to, I want to say Health Canada, could be a different, it could be the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions now, but we, we su submitted a kind of corresponding grant application asking for money to fund the evaluation. Our SUAP, the Substance Use and Addictions Program grant, gets re rejected in April, I believe, of 2022. And, and I, again, all this information, sorry, March 29th, 2022. This is also on our website. All, all of our documentation is public facing. Anyone can steal it. Like if anyone wanted to run a project, we're really not of the school of thought where we think it's, you know, ethical to hide what we're doing. My, you know, minus our location, minus things that would obviously put us in danger. We don't want to share that information with the general public. But all our program frameworks, the way we operate, the way we do everything is all available through our website. Uh, so we get our, our grants, our funding proposal is rejected in March of 2022. And then in July, we get an email that basically is like, you guys say you're going to use the illicit market that funds organized crime. Also, there's all these UN conventions about trafficking illicit narcotics. Uh, you have to listen to the UN, you know, like Canada does that. Ha -ha. Uh, so we're basically like, we don't have another option to use the illicit market unless you grant us this exemption. Like you're putting the cart ahead of the horse. Instead of working with us, you're working against us. And we say, look, if you're not going to give us the exemption, we're going to run the project anyway, like kick rocks. You know, mm -hmm. what ends up happening is the day after we say that they reject our application. But simultaneously to this occurring, our local health authority, uh, Vancouver Coastal Health, under... Under the Declaration of the Public Health Emergency, which invokes the Public Health Act, I think it's called, grants Dalton exemption to run drug testing overdose prevention services. So before Health Canada rejects our application, our local health authority 
gives us this, you know, wishy-washy exemption to operate, uh, which later is codified by a different exemption that I'm still not sure I'm allowed to speak too much to, but we are operating in a very silly kind of gray zone. On top of this fact, Jeremy Calicum, who's the other Gulf co-founder, is applying to med school. His reference to med school is a person that rejected our application. Dig that. So anyway, we, we run the project for a year. It's a, so a, it's, it's a randomized control study initially, right? So we have 21 people. We go to Vandu. We go to all the drug user groups in the, in the neighborhood in July. And we're like, look, we're running this study. If you want, you can, if you're someone who's over the age of 19, if you use cocaine, heroin, or methamphetamine, if you're at risk of overdose, if uh, you're a member of a drug user group in Vancouver's downtown east side, you can apply to, you know, be uh, picked for this study, right? And so we get this list of like, whatever, 200 applicants, right? So we go to Vandu and in classic Vandu style, we draw names out of a hat. I know we could have used a computer or whatever, but it didn't seem as appropriate given, you know, the nature of Vandu and his history. So we draw 21 people out of the hat. That is the treatment group or what's called the treatment group. Basically the group that has access to the club. And then we draw another 21 people and that's the control group. So that's a group who we study, but we don't allow access to the club. And so three months goes by. So we open the store in August, probably August 10th, I think. And then three months go by, which puts you in November. And at this point in time, we're like, Jesus Christ, this is so unethical. We can't have a control group. Like we can't, we can't just study people and not give them access to the club. Like it feels too fucked up. So we, we give the, the club, uh, we give the control group access to the club. So now we have a 42 person treatment group and no control. So the study kind of goes from being a uh, randomized control study to just a randomized study where where we take people you know from this population drug users in the downtown east side who there's a million other studies that we can use as a control whether it's vitus vancouver injection drug user survey whether it's insights data whether it's other ops data whatever that we can use to compare our our study with and then uh kind of like subsequently there are a few people that we have to prioritize adding uh, to the club for various reasons. So we end up with around, I think we're up to 52 people can access it right now. And, um, you know, we frequently think about adding more people, but you have to think we've been running this project illegally for a year. And and right now we're, oh, you, you don't have the pro version of Zoom. I don't. But will can I be you... able to call you back if it runs out? Yeah, it's going to yeah, run yeah. out. I'll have to no, do something. It, it will run out. Uh, yeah, feel free to free, feel free to call me back. Okay, fuck. Uh, it'll also do that thing where it makes you wait for the recording to to load, but uh, I I don't have anything else to do till seven. So I well, that's a, my blessing. Then that it's uh, intermission. We'll call it intermission in nine minutes. Yeah, yeah, I'll go get a glass of water because I've been talking so much. Anyway, so so basically, a year into running the project, our findings are kind of the following, right? And this, again, is also, if you go on Dolph.ca right now, this is a landing page. 
it's a bunch of demographic information, but basically over the last year for the compassion evaluative compassion club, we've provided three kilos of drugs, right? Because we use what's called economy of scale, uh, where we buy in a large amount and then we don't charge profit selling it at a small amount because when you buy in bulk, you reduce your cost. So, you know, an ounce is going to be cheaper than seven grams. Five ounces is going to be cheaper than one ounce, blah, blah, blah. Uh, what we've calculated by comparing the price of drugs on the street to, to our price of drugs is that we've prevented approximately $100,000. We've sold like $130,000 of drugs. We've prevented $100,000 of profit from going into hands of organized crime. And what the does the UN, I want to know what the UN has to say about that. <laughs> UN is all over the place in drug policy. And, and there's like ongoing subcommittees of the UN that are trying to revise their, their drug policy. But I think the important thing to, the reason I bring this up is because the preamble to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act says, the purpose of this act is to guarantee uh, the health of the Canadian public and the public safety, right? So ostensibly to prevent people from becoming addicted to drugs, however you want to understand that, and to prevent organized crime from flourishing, you know? So I'm like, up until recently, we didn't have a very good argument at how we're, you know, preventing organized crime from thriving, because the argument would be, well, you got to defy drugs from criminal gangs. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, what actually we're doing is reducing the inflows of capital because we don't have that kind of aggressive, exploitative uh, price gouging that, you know, that organized crime has. And I, and I would never fault people for trying to make money. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to badmouth criminals because for, I've done a lot of criminal stuff in my life even now. But uh, I, I will say, like, if you want to make the argument that we're supporting organized crime, my, my response would be, well, you can't not support organized crime if you're going to, to touch illegal narcotics. We're at least reducing the harm of, you know, caused by the drug market, you know, harm reduction. Uh -huh. Mm-hmm. Well, to move on from that point, which I just want to make out the gate because everyone's going to jump, be like, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, we're, we're, a, we're a far better model than what you have now. But to move into the health, health and social outcomes. So the first thing to note is we, zero people have died from taking our drugs ever from either stream, from the free drug dope on arrival program or from the evaluative compassion club. And uh, I guess for context, because I didn't bring this up, people can come. Four days a week right now, we're open 24 hours per week, not 24 hours per day, but like two four-hour shifts and two eight-hour shifts approximately. And they can buy up to 14 grams of each drug per week. So 14 grams of Coke, 14 grams of meth, 14 grams of heroin at a time, meaning someone can buy 14 grams of heroin, walk out the front door with it, Bob's your uncle, right? We've had zero deaths. We've had zero overdoses with naloxone administered. Uh, and then statistically, because we do this gigantic evaluation, there's been a 32% decrease in overdoses requiring naloxone for the entire study population 
uh, a 35% reduction in all overdoses. And for this subpopulation of people who have ever injected drugs, which to me, it doesn't mean you're actively injecting drugs, but it means you have at least at one point in time, uh, there's a 68% reduction in overdoses with naloxone required and a 57% uh, percent reduction in all overdoses. And I think that's important because these people are going to be, you know, classically the, the population that's more at risk uh, of overdose. Like there are people that have access to our program because again, it was randomized within the confines of being a member to a, of a drug user group who have never overdosed, who have never injected drugs, who are just like, I smoke crystal meth or I'm a party cocaine user, you know? So for those people, you can't have a reduction in overdoses because you start at zero. So when you when you move into the like more hardcore crowd of people that are using drugs, there are you know greater reductions. And then and then we move into these observed. So people will come back to us and be like, well, that's self-reported data, right? Like you're asking people to report to you how many times they overdosed in the last three months, and then comparing these blocks of time and running averages and blah blah blah, doing all the boring, annoying stuff you do when you do population and public health science. So we also run a supervised OPS, meaning we watch people use drugs and we see what they're using, right? So we've had to date around 800 uses of our OPS. Again, because we're not, a, we don't force people to do their doses there. We're not, we don't have a rule where it's like we have to witness you. So the majority of people buy their drugs and they leave. Is, this, like, the, is, this, is this the overnight site? Or no, separate no, OPS? That's, this is a separate OPS. So okay. we, have a, we have a brick and mortar store that sells the drugs, right? Mm -hmm. That people come into who are members of the Compassion Club. And that store has an OPS. So okay. the OPS is only open during the hours where we sell drugs. Right. And I again try to to like draw the parallel to like a cannabis dispensary, like or even a liquor store. You don't conventionally buy your liquor and drink it there, or buy your cannabis and smoke it in the dispensary, right? You leave with it. So the fact that we wouldn't like a, an OPS specifically, like we wouldn't force people to do drugs in front of us because we think that's unethical. But from what we have observed, which include. 219 uses of our heroin, uh, 188 of which were without concurrent use of street drugs, 278 uses of our cocaine, 143 of those uses that were without concurrent use of street drugs, and 414 uses of methamphetamine, 268 of which were without concurrent use of street drugs. There have been zero overdoses. If you look at the 2017 insight rate of overdose, and this is like the very early uh, end of the crisis. They had a 9.5 overdose per hundred or per thousand witness uses, right? Mm -hmm. So we have a zero for 800. Probably at this point, we've never had an overdose at the site. And I guarantee you, like the longer the amount of uses grows exponentially. So the longer we run the project, the more people use the OPS, but we've never had an overdose. So if you compare our project to an OPS where they don't sell drugs, we have an astronomically lower rate of overdose. So I think I think these kind of findings are really important. And the last thing I'll say uh, before the time cuts us off, because we're gonna we only have a minute. 
So we also looked at people's rates of engagement with the cops. We looked at whether or not they've been hospitalized and whether or not they've they would experience drug-related violence, meaning you owe a dealer money and they kick your ass because you owe the money, right? There's a there's a 48% decrease in police engagement in our study. There's a 50% decrease in hospitalizations and a 39% decrease in drug-related violence. So these are all pretty uh astronomical findings and i'll leave it there and we'll come back and discuss a little further after today's episode of spinning yarns is brought to you by juice people are thirsty give them some juice you fucking asshole okay so it sounds like you handed the government the golden ticket and they just turned their back. Well, here's my read on it. Uh, we didn't have this data when we initially, no one has done this. No one's run a, pro, a demedicalized project where they can just buy drugs, you know? So there's no, the closest piece of evidence we have is Crosstown. You know, things like Naomi and Salome and these kind of like, you know, heroin, heroin, opiate agonist, the injectable heroin, opiate agonist trials. Right. That's not, that's not, that has nothing to do with our model. Quite frankly, I don't think, you know, to me, medica the medicalization of drug use is the most ridiculous thing ever. Like, Drugs are not a carceral issue, meaning they, they shouldn't be dealt with by the police. And they're certainly not a medical issue for the most part. Most people do drugs and it doesn't cause them extreme medical duress beyond being hung over. And maybe you'll get, you know, bladder cancer at age 60 because you're an alcoholic or whatever. But people aren't destroying their lives because they have 12 drinks after work. They go to work and then they come home. And they drink whatever, you know, so the, the medicalization of drugs, this idea that, oh, you have to have a disorder and go to a doctor and it has to be treatment for a disease, the, the disease model of addiction. All this to me is ridiculous saying, you know, I'm very anti-psychiatric uh, and I think it should just be thrown in the trash. So when, when we go to Health Canada initially, they have nothing nothing to it's all conjecture to them right we're going and we're like hey we have a model that based on all these other pieces of evidence none of which are literally what we're asking to do we believe will very very positively impact people's health right mm -hmm. and so, so well to, to the government it's political suicide because the way this reads in the media first of all i'm like we seem like crackpots. I mean, this is why we get Jeremy to do a lot of the comms and not me because <laughs> look at him. Look at me. Uh, but I'm like, I'm like, the, the, you know, just, just a, we're, we're not like, neither of us is like an MD or something. So it's, it's kind of two people with like both lived experience of drug use and backgrounds in the field, although not the correct professional credentials proposing a model with support, admittedly, from various academics and academic institutions, uh, that would, you know, the liberals would just get torched approving. Mm -hmm. 
Like that, it would be like a cute. They would be the conservatives would be like, "You guys legalized heroin," you know, which is far from what we even requested. But I could see how it would come across as political suicide. So, I think the unfortunate reality is this is going to need to when when our application was rejected all that time ago in July of 2022. You know, more than a year and two months ago. Uh, we took we took El Canada to court saying that they they had ignored people's fundamental charter rights, specifically their Section Seven charter right, which is their right to life, liberty, security of person, blah blah blah, and their Section Fifteen uh, charter right, which is their right to not be discriminated against because they have a mental disorder. Now the thing is, and as much as I disagree with you know diagnoses of substance use disorder, if you have a substance use disorder. Uh, you know, which is a thing in the DSM, uh, a, a mental health disorder in the DSM, I should say, if you have a substance use disorder, which means you have to recursively go out and buy drugs, no matter how much trouble you get in, no matter what legal paradigm exists, blah, 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 uh, and you do not have access to safe drugs, your, uh, you know, Section 7 charter rights and your Section uh, 15 Charter rights, the right to not be discriminated against if you have a mental disorder, are being infringed upon by the Canadian state. And that's kind of our argument in court, that by not allowing us to run this project, you're neglecting uh, people's fundamental Section 7 and 15 charter rights, right? Well, you guys, you, you're doing you're doing all the work, but it's just about, it's like a race. Well, the, the problem is scale, and the problem is the scope of the the obliterate, like I have clearly I have very severe PTSD if I wake up screaming in cold sweats like five out of seven nights of the week, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I, I I feel like I'm one step away from a mental breakdown. So I'm like, what we have is evidence that shows the project works, you know, yeah. to some extent. And we have, you know, we can argue about scientific significance till the cows come home. We're working on writing a very academic paper. We have significance depending on which test you run. And, you know, because we don't have in stats, uh, I don't know how much you know about population stats, and I'm probably going to bore your pants off. But normally you want what's called a normative distribution, meaning it looks like a bell curve, right? You have a population with a median and things go out you know, over whatever, three quartiles, and then you have three standard deviations away, and you can run like a one-tailed or two-tailed uh, parametric test to, to find significance, to find a p-value. We don't, our, our sample size is much too small. We have whatever, you know, 52 people. Well, so we don't have a normatively distributed sample, meaning we can't run normative, you know, parametric. We have to run non-parametric tests and then you get into all these like philosophy of science, philosophy of statistics questions about, you know, where, where at what point you hit is statistical significance with the non-normatively distributed. Like it, it, all this shit is coming up where I'm like, oh, I didn't even think we'd get this far, let alone have to deal with this as a problem. Yeah. And uh, assuming we're right, you know. Assuming it is our intervention that's causing all, all of these outcomes to improve and not just it's not just random chance. Like this program should be scaled up exponentially. And then there are questions about, well, where are you getting the drugs to run that exponentially scaled up question? And instead of 
Remember back at the beginning of this when I was like, I had this fucking idea in 2018 when I worked for the government and then they fired me because they said I was too much of a bitch. <laughs> well, if we had started working on this then, let alone, you know, after the success of Naomi Salome in the fucking early 90s, blah, 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 blah. Like, we could have avoided this. How many people are going to die? Well, we have to figure this out and put all the pieces together. Where are we going to get all the drugs from? And then questions about you know, the, the anti-colonial struggle, cooperations with the global south and building out, you know, fair trade networks of heroin and opium and blah, blah, blah. Like, we've been destroying the world with colonial violence. Look at Afghanistan or South and Central America for the last infinitesimal amount of time, you know, and all of a sudden like, yeah, the global good earth, good government league is going to pull a 180 on their, like, let's kill everyone shit. You know, they got Epstein Island. They got a lot yeah. They got on the line. They got like rape and tortured children island that uh, you know we're fucking with. So, really, from my perspective, I didn't think we'd ever push it this far. Let alone run the project for a year. Let alone get like what we believe is scientifically significant data. Let alone you know blah 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 blah. blah. Like I thought the train would just run off the tracks and we'd all go to jail. Yeah. Well, now everything's super fucked up, and I'm like, what are we gonna do? And everyone's like. La, la, la. <laughs> you know what I mean and and it, it's um I don't know I don't know what the answer I mean I could I could rattle off some like theoretical directions this could go but without like more you know at least at least national cooperation yeah. and if not international cooperation we're going to be in deep shit real fast and what if there was just more groups that joined like on the federal level, like on your on your same level, it's not not on the government I just don't side. Know. Where where do we uh, run out of heroin? Though? You know what I mean. Like I'm like, there's all this speculation. Like, oh, the Taliban don't want to manufacture heroin anymore because it's you know it, it goes against their beliefs and blah blah blah. So they're going to throttle the supply. I do during COVID, it was pretty fucking difficult to get pure heroin. Just period. And I'm like, where's the supply come from? Like, I do think with our model, you can push it so far. And you could push it really, really far if groups could sell fentanyl. I think selling, and that's that's the other thing, is we only have, you know, a third rate of titration onto to heroin if people are addicted to fentanyl. So two out of three people that are daily fentanyl users cannot switch to heroin even with access to it. Right. Like, it's not strong enough. Yeah. Well, so someone's got to start selling and manufacturing fentanyl. But well, well, the, the political conversation is, think of the kids. It's like Reverend Lovejoy's wife, you know? And I'm like, how are we going to go from, you have two dumb morons in Vancouver who are like, we think we have the answer to like a lot of international strife and, you know, the new Jim Crow and flood da 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 and all this money and power trying to crush people down. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I do think it starts like any other political movement with, you know, other people going out and doing it. But I do see very large logistical problems emerging quite quickly. And even with us, it's like we're trafficking so much, so much drugs. Like how, how far, how much risk do we want to put ourselves? At? Like, do we want to get killed on some shit and then not be able to do anything? You know what I mean? Do you think they're just like, like waiting for you to 
run the train off the tracks or and, and or, or like are they going to shut you down i think what they're waiting for is us to go to court and our court date is march the 7th okay if we lose in court i don't know what'll happen quite frankly i'm just like what the fuck would it would people expect to happen like unless they do what we're advocating for everyone does right yeah the, i've never seen an intervention overdose prevention sites which are actually overdose reversal sites like they don't prevent overdoses they reverse them mm -hmm. uh well you can only push that so far because the majority of people that use drugs don't want to go to some fucking you know medicalized environment or even a peer-run you know injection site to use it there's like uh, most people have routines of drug use where they either use drugs alone or with their friends mm -hmm. well if you're alone and no one's got narcan you're dead if you owed it right yeah well so i'm like you can't you can't go in the direction of overdose prevention sites you can't go in the direction of medicalization because ain't nobody want to see their fucking doctor to be prescribed dilated for their fentanyl addiction so they have to shoot 92 dilated pills i'm like there's a reason it's all getting diverted i told them when they rolled out that program i was like nobody's gonna want this it's weak as fuck you know your your evidence, which uh, you're pulling from uh, uh, your ass on this, like there's there's no there's no evidence that this could work on this scale. Um, sorry, I forgot. I did tell someone I would meet them and just hand them something, so I might have to run away for okay. a second. But but there's all these big questions like scale. Uh, you know, I'm like, anybody can run a small version of what we're doing and keep their friends safe. I guarantee you, if you buy drugs from the dark web, they're going to be safer than things you find on the street. Because the dark web at least has peer-reviewed, uh, you know, it's like Amazon. You're like, this seller has five stars and I can find out if they're good or bad, even barring drug testing. And then realistically... I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if every fuck, sorry, I got to deal with this. Oh, no, and, uh, no problem. Uh, I don't know. I don't, not every province has this, the type of drug type, but at least within BC, I know anybody can courier drugs to substance. Mm -hmm. uh, I get at least PSMS level testing. And we do at this point, we have an agreement with the university of British Columbia to do nuclear magnetic resonancy testing, which is which is far more exact in a, in a, in telling us what's in samples. But for the vast majority of this project, we didn't have that agreement. And honestly, I'm like, does it knowing that something is like ninety eight percent and not a hundred percent is not gonna you're not you, no one's gonna fucking notice. You know what I mean? Because the other two percent is like molecules that neither type of test can pick up. Which again goes back to to manufacturer, but I just have to run this package downstairs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Hey, so, so I'm thinking I'm thinking we need to see more drug user groups across the country pop up and take on the responsibility to order the drugs from the dark web because it's just not practical that people are gonna order their dope on on you know online like there needs to so there's there's different levels of solution right 
I think a very foundational thing, and we, we just know this generally, is if you create spaces for people to use drugs to go, this improves their health and social outcomes right off the bat. So if you're if you have a high needs community, i.e. one where the overdose rate is higher than it statistically uh, than it statistically should be, you should probably have some kind of drug user union or network or like a vandu, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then if you have that, you can stack a compassion club on top of it. But you, you again, you start hitting just questions of scale and scope and amount of work and amount of energy. Like you need mass industrial reform to end this crisis. Mm-hmm. You need, you need like the end of segregation level of reform in national and international politics. And right now, what you have is people being like, nah, you know. So, so my real question is, I'm like. You can get access to this toolkit and we're more than happy to to provide it to people and coach them on how to use it. But you will very quickly realize that what we're doing is fucking psychotic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most people are not going to have the individual capacity or, or just like, like it would be very hard for me to imagine anyone else running this project because of how much effort it takes. And even without the evaluation you know like right now i'm working like a hundred hours a week and i can only do that because i take dexedrine constantly and then take xanax to go to bed mm-hmm. well i'm like that's not my body feels like it's imploding i feel like i'm gonna die my brain's all fucked up i'm like this has destroyed my life and my well-being you know and i wouldn't wish that on anyone but i'm sure if you're in a high enough needs community You'll, you'll be in the same situation. But it, 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 even barring the, the mental aspect of running the project, then you have to think about organized crime. Like, it's not the police that scare me, you know, because mm-hmm. the police coming in and trying to arrest us. Like, we have human rights lawyers and criminal defense lawyers. They would get, it would be a PR nightmare. It's organized crime. That I, I'm right here. You know what I mean? It's not like anyone's protecting me. I'm wiping down the street in the downtown east side. You can come and find me and kill me pretty easily. Let alone kidnap me and do horrible fucking stuff. Well, I'm like, who's going to take on all this risk? You know what I mean? And it's certainly not going to be... Conventional drug dealers, hand-to-mouth kind of like survival drug dealers, don't have the capacity to do the amount of tech, like for us to guarantee our compassion club members, uh, a tested regulated supply of drugs. We have to have four ounces of each substance on hand uh, at all times. And that's for 50 people. And for, for every 10 people we add, you need another $10,000 of drugs on inventory because not only do you have to have drugs that have been tested, you have to have drugs that are awaiting testing. You have to have drugs in the process of being delivered. Like it's this huge industrial process we're doing. And, and so I don't want to claim it's impossible for anyone else to do, but I'm like, I there's a reason we haven't seen anyone take up our model. Like, you know what I mean? We've been running it for a year and there, there's still no, no one else doing it. I, unless there's someone doing it clandestinely, and God bless you for that work. But um, as far as I know, there's not another version of this project. And that's kind of my concern is that we we are death by pilot study. We kind of get like into the position where they're like, 
Well, yeah, you can run your little project for 50 people, but we're not letting you expand it. Then you're just like stuck like this indefinitely, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so where do, you, where do you push the envelope? And it's not like we can shut down. If we shut the program down, everyone that relied on us for safe drugs would go back to the illicit drug market and die, you know? Yeah. Well, so we're fucked, like the situation's fucked, and, and they're not, I'm not very optimistic uh, about outcomes. I'm optimistic about our results being demonstrative that there is something else that could happen, but how you get from A to Z, you know, is not, not clear to me. And I, I'm sure it's even more unclear to people who have power, right? Yeah, if they're not going to participate, it's like that. That's it. It's you're you're there like a fucking ant farm. You know, they're just watching. Like it, it's it's a it's a fishbowl. It's crazy. Well, so what's going on with um the the overnight OPS? That's that's some more some more friends with some that's more civil disobedience. So that's a, that's an organization I founded, but I left that that group to fund this. I mean, the, the lay of the land in Vancouver, and especially in the downtown east side, is just very, there are people doing drugs all over the place, people overdosing. All of, I live right next to a uh, fire hall, so I can hear the sirens constantly. Mm -hmm. Like, people are fucked up all over the place. Well, up until the coalition started that OPS, there was... Um, no overdose prevention services overnight, right? So you would have this gap from about 2 a.m. till... 11 a.m. where if someone wanted to use drugs they couldn't use them at a supervised site because insight would shut down and ops overdose prevention society would shut down the molson off blah blah hey all these sites sister space whatever maybe sister space might have been open but it was uh it is a women's only space so it's not accessible to everyone you know for a multiplicity of different reasons and um the coalition took it upon themselves to, to kind of bridge the gap overnight without funding which is another totally psychotic like, like that's a project even i wouldn't want to run you know and god bless the people that are doing it like that's like truly heroic because i'm like well you're gonna get the craziest fucking people who's up in the middle of the night shooting dope is like yeah. crazy people you know yeah well sure. so i'm like sort of running this site and i'm like it's going well i know they're trying to raise money to pay their volunteers and shit and there's some i don't know what the yeah, delay Defund six oh four network has a as a fundraiser runner. We'll we'll link it up in the show notes. Yeah, so, so they're trying to do that. So you have you know, I, I there's a sentence, who keeps us safe? We keep us safe, right? So I, I think there are all these interventions that are being executed to, by the community for the community. Mm -hmm. And uh they're not getting supported in the way they should. And like you know, society just pushes society's lazy it's weak it's it's herd like it pushes towards carceral solutions to everything i think to have a you know a society without police or without police style interventions you have to have a very self-disciplined society and you have to have people who are ready to be brave and courageous in situations uh that warrant it you know where where you could just shoot someone with a gun, but instead you're going to intervene in their mental health crisis. And that takes a tremendous amount of personal fortitude, even just responding to overdoses. You know what I mean? That shit fucks you up. It'll rot, rot your brain and make you insane if you do it too much. Yeah. Well, so I'm like, you have, you know, and this is kind of 
partially because I've always been a piece of shit or whatever, but, and these are my people, I guess, but you have the underbelly of society that has to maintain some kind of stasis. You know, and I guess I guess at the end of the day, even I'm turning into just this jaded person that's like, nobody gives a fuck, like, everyone dies. Yeah. That's, you know, and I, I don't... Uh, I don't know. Can you have social reform in short periods of time? We've seen it happen before, but it doesn't happen without, you know, you have to have the carrot and the stick. And right now there's neither, you know, Dolph is kind of both and not doing any either exceptionally well, I guess, you know, to a limited extent, we're producing this data that's never existed before. So people... When people come and are like, you don't know selling drug users drugs with a pre predictable content will prevent their overdoses, you can be like, well, yeah, we do know because there's this rigorous yeah. scientific study, right? That didn't exist before. But Where they left us alone in, in the downtown east side of Vancouver for 20 years to run this research. It's insane. Well, and the only... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just, I don't know, just thinking of what we can, what we can do to help you like your, your heroin yeah. mart, right? Where you've got merch. Yeah, you, know? yeah. Well, you can, you can support us and stuff, but I'm like, like, um, I, as a person running this shit, I try and think about the big picture and I look at what, what needs to happen is like international reform. Yeah. You know, I'm like, it's not just the government of, I'm like, you have a whole world uh, that is just like against every type of drug except alcohol, and in some cases even alcohol, where, you know, the, the more prohibitionist your model is, the more the thing is pushed into some kind of illicit sphere where it becomes inordinately more dangerous. It's just like sex work or anything else. And what you need to do is take things out of the illicit sphere, sphere and move them into the sphere of regulation if you want to reduce the harm of the thing the problem is when you start moving something out of an illicit sphere and into the sphere of regulation it starts impacting your body politic like it'll, it'll start becoming apparent to the majority of society that there is a problem rather than just a specialized group of researchers or whomever right and once you start talking to the general populace about very complicated issues, this kind of drive to herd, you know, drive to Nazism, people's secret fascist and totalitarian, they're just like, kill them and put them in jail, right? Well, I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, maybe the answer is just have Brave New World, where it's like, shut up, I'm in, where you do get authoritarianism, but it's like... Uh, at least there's no more suffering kind of authoritarianism, you know? And I would certainly take that over what we have now, although I'd probably be banished to Iceland. But I'm like, what we have now in this community is slaughter of the worst kind. And I haven't even talked about the colonial dimensions of this, but you have to understand that, first of all, BC is predominantly unceded, you know, indigenous territory with Vancouver sitting on the, the homelands of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Swirletooth nations. There is a disproportionate amount of indigenous people who are overdosing and dying. And, you know, uh, other indigenous people are like, look, the downtown east side's like, uh, it's just like any other reserve. So if you have this community that's predominantly indigenous where people are getting fucking smoked out of the water, for, dead from overdoses, and they're all indigenous people, I'm like, isn't that a machination of genocide? 
Well, you would you would imagine people would want to live in a society where we don't celebrate genocide, but then you look at other shit and you're like, wait, people don't have clean drinking water. Mm-hmm. Like people in our country, people in our country don't have clean water. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And 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 shit, you're just like, the fuck? Where is everyone's humanity and humility and stuff? And I think at the end of the day, I, this is why I'm more like a a Republican than anything else because I'm like society must be defended like people should i don't care i don't care where the 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 upper echelon is as long as the lower the lowest of the low have a bare minimum subsistence you know what i mean and certainly water shelter food drugs you know love education these kind of things are are paramount to having that aim and socially people just want to sit at home and jerk off and watch game of thrones i'm like yeah well, I'm like, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're fucked. And, you know, I guess as, as radical actors, all you can do is try and push the envelope and do things that are conducive to social change. But, like... For as long as I you can stand it without going insane. I'm certainly not an optimist. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you can't help anyone unless you can help yourself, right? So, well, I, I, I think Charles Manson has that line first you bring order to yourself and then you bring order to your family and then you can bring order to the world Charles Manson yeah. <laughs> uh, well for my money your you're national treasure international treasure uh, I thank you for coming and joining me yeah, I, my favorite interview so far and I, I didn't have to say a word I love it I love yeah, to I hear you I love to hear you go from my mouth. <laughs> I will say I don't mean to sound you know, so pessimistic that there's no hope. I do think if if you are so inclined, you know, reach out to the Dolph email, which is just drug user liberation front at gmail.com. Uh, and I can send you, I made this video tutorial, Filter Magazine was supposed to publish it and then they wussed out like a bunch of wusses. But it's basically A to B, how to access drugs on the dark web. And if, if you can figure that out, I'm like, here are my recommendations to, to do what Dolph does. One, you need two nonprofits. You need the nonprofit that is responsible for selling the drugs. And then you need another nonprofit that can open bank accounts. Because the one that sells the drugs, and nobody's going to, in the right, they're going to look at who you are and what you do and be like, this is fucked. You, we're not letting you open a bank at TD Bank, you know? The second nonprofit, its purpose should be to convert money into cryptocurrency so you can access dark web markets. And that's it. It should be, we are started to allow nonprofits in our community to uh, integrate cryptocurrencies into their operations. Then that thing, which acts as a brokerage, has a bank account, blah, blah, blah. The, the, the drug selling nonprofit buys cryptocurrency with cash. The cryptocurrency nonprofit buys the cryptocurrency with credit, and that you know that that allows you to have this circle of uh, washing, if you will, of funds. And then the 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 drug nonprofit sells the drugs at cost. Never make a profit off drugs if you're doing this. That's scum fuck behavior. Write grants or do it for free for a long time. Off operated with no money or with crowdsource money to to buy the drugs, and then uh, you know I I don't know I feel like most of the provinces have some kind of mail in 
drug checking service that uses at least paper, paper spray mass spec. And I'm like, if you can access that, uh, you know, you're kind of operating from the, from the point Dolph was, but it's a, it's a tremendous amount of work and nobody's going to tell you you're doing a good job. Like you're basically setting yourself up to wreck your life. But I think there are, you know, are other people out there who probably have gotten to that point with seeing people die. Yeah. So I will say, I would say it's not for everyone, but it is, it is viable to do on some kind of scale. I just, I wonder where the, you know, where the sense, right? I want to see, I, I see the video. I want to see the. I'll send it to you after this call, but I, I yeah. would say, um, I would say it's got to end somewhere. I hope it's somewhere positive. And I, I, I do want to leave this on a good note. In my ideal world, you know, the, the war on drugs ends and all these countries that we've ravaged with, you know, whether it's proxy war or just overthrowing their governments or whatever kind of CIA meddling, you know, we go back to them and we say, hey, do you want us to help you build your economies? We're going to buy you know, cocaine, uh, heroin, uh, methamphetamine is obviously manufactured in Canada, but whatever, MDMA, which comes from the sassafras tree, hence my middle name, we're going to buy these drugs from you at reasonable prices and everyone benefits because up until now, this ultra-violent kind of, you know, hyper-militarized gangs have controlled this system, right? Well, that shit could do a lot of good for the world, but it's too bad the world's controlled by, you know, sadists who we should kill. And uh, that's... That's the positive note to leave it on right there. Well, I think <laughs> I think change is possible. It just can, can something like Dolph be the tip of a spear that goes through, you know, uh, I think the it billionaire's can. heads? Well, I let's, think it can. Let's keep yeah. fighting a good fight, you know? Yeah, always. Please, please. And just, uh, are, are we going to hear uh, some more uh, Dust Blaster? Is that is that in the cards? Or? Yeah, we broke up. Our drummer got way too pregnant, so we broke <sighs> up. And then went on to start a new band. But I am working on several different music projects. You can My personal website is erisnix.info. Okay. Uh, which I'll put into the chat. And then uh, you can also... My label's band camp also from here, which I just registered as a corporation. So uh, I got some things on the horizon. I don't stop. I'm too no. crazy to slow down, you know? Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. Big fan. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I'll let you go, and uh, thanks so much for the interview. Eh? It was good Thank to be you. able to vent. I feel like I haven't been able to get that off my chest in a you, minute. You want to just scream for a little bit for two minutes? <laughs> I can't do that in my house. That would be uh, that would be mean to my neighbors. But, uh, I'd wake my right. kids up anyway. Uh, no doubt. Thanks Thank very you. Much. Thank you. Okay. Peace. Harris is wild. Genius radical. You can hear them talk. And they're so frustrated and passionate about it. And it's a lot to take in. Talking about market deregulation, cost-based replacement of crack cocaine by domestically produced crystal meth, predictable content of drugs that are needed, diffusion of harm reduction services in a white supremacist government during a public health crisis and an OD epidemic, Section 56 Control Drugs and Substances Act, nuclear magnetic resonance testing. It's a lot. We're talking about all that. Eris knows their shit. Dolph knows their shit. 
Vancouver knows their shit. The drug user groups know their shit. They're the experts on this. You have to listen to them because not only do they know all of this shit, they know what it is for their friends to die all around them en masse for years, for years, man. This is turning into a generational trauma. So we have to take all this on. And and the whole time it is it is a bullshit white supremacist government on stolen land who doesn't give a fuck about clean water for for for, for indigenous people. They don't give a fuck about anything but themselves. Flying around in little airplanes. I don't know. Pretending they give a shit. They don't care. Who's gonna keep us safe? We're gonna keep us safe. Keep up the fight. I'll see you next time on Spinning Yards. Spinning Yards is brought to you by High Fi Umbilical Productions, where 100% DIY with zero tolerance for intolerance. Spinning Yards is recorded on stolen land in front of a live studio audience. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Gmail, and Linktree at Yarnspinning. Please like, follow, and share to show your support. We're building this together. Spinning Yarns is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you kids go for podcasts these days. Check out our Patreon if you'd like to help out the show, and you can always find us on the web at our landing site, joeamero.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, Reach out. Let's shoot the shit. We're just spinning yarns. Connecting with respect and respecting the connections.